Jesus. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is from the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. Generally, when a guest speaker takes the watch off and puts it on the podium, it means nothing. I was speaking to my, my son who lives uh, just a few minutes away from here, but remember this is a 90-minute service, and that's hard for some children. And um, I guess the Lord wanted me to remember something about long sermons because I had a dream that this building had six chandeliers, and the chandeliers didn't contain lights. It contained a great clock. So there were two, four, six clocks. And if that wasn't sufficient, there were two large, two more large clocks on the back wall. So I will, um, I will try to make good use of, uh, of my time, the Lord's time, and, and your time. Listen, the scripture is so exciting. And when you come to the writings of Paul, now remember this, there are two great pillars about which Paul speaks. And he does it in this passage. One pillar is, is darkness and death and everything that's negative. And the other great pillar, as he bounces back and forth, and he does it in this passage, is life. It's forgiveness. It's life with Christ. It's our new life in Christ. So here is God's word, 2 Corinthians 5 beginning with verse 8. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Is that how you think? We would prefer to be away from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them. And was raised again. May the Lord bless 
the reading of his words to the ears and the hearts of those who hear. Well, Ellen won't recapitulate, but I will. One sentence. I preached a few months ago from Mark 5, Luke 5 about the six, the four friends that brought the paralyzed man to Jesus. And the text says that because of the faith of the four, the faith of the group, the miracle was accomplished. Because the paralyzed man had no faith, so the text says it was the faith of the friends that led to his, his healing and his salvation. And so accordingly, I said, it is the faith of, of you, the group, that will determine whether the blessings of God come to the church or not. It's dependent on your faith. Unless you think that, you know, he's lost his mind driving here this morning. In, in Matthew, there is a statement where it is said of Jesus that he chose because of their lack of faith not to do much in that village. So your faith is important. And then the next time I was here, I was able to point out from Philippians 4.13 that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So I asked, what are you doing for Christ? He's willing to strengthen you. And then I suggested one of the things that you could do would be to ask God to use you in the life of one person in the next year. Well, your session that is so scrambled to find a, a pastor would then start to scramble about, well, how many services can we have in one day if we double every year because you are such awesome people. Look how, how, how God has used you in many ways during your backgrounds, even before, before you knew him, perhaps. And he can use you to add one person. So today, in the, the time that I have before those eight clocks appear in my mind, or in your mind, that I want to, uh, in conclusion, leave you one sentence that you can go away. It's a will you or won't you. I believe that the purpose of preaching is life change. And so when you really believe that the future of our church rests on the faith of the believers. That's significant. When you see that you can do all things through Christ, I can do something, and I will. So off we go. Clock on the podium. Great clocks in my mind. The year was 1803, and the pernicious infidelity of the book by Thomas Paine, The Age of Reason, had swept across colonial America like a great tidal wave, but it was a tidal wave of unbelief. In Massachusetts, there was one particular clergyman who still held to the historic Orthodox Christian faith. And he had a son, a son of remarkable brilliance beyond anything that had been seen in that part of the colonies. 
And he entered Brown University, the Ivy League, at age 15. And the pastor had harbored secretly the idea that his son would would perhaps follow in his footsteps, but not necessarily the pastorate, but as a believing man with that level of intellect would be used by God to accomplish marvelous things for God's kingdom. But the young man, whose name was Don, had other thoughts. He saw himself as perhaps being a great writer. Maybe he would like, be like Homer all those years ago. They would write the Odyssey and the Iliad that we read or pretended that we read in school. Or perhaps he would be a great general. Maybe a great conqueror like Alexander. Or maybe he would be a great statesman. The President of the United States or in some capacity he would lead great nations in, in great ways. But he knew that whatever he did, that he had the ability to do it with excellence. And he knew as a young man that he would be successful. And so arriving in the Ivy League at age 15 years old, the other students in the faculty quickly realized what had walked in their door. Now there was an upperclassman who shared some of those same intellectual abilities with Don. And as you can imagine, the two were, were drawn to each other. The upperclassman, Don never gives us his name, but his initial which was E. He had embraced, he had the skepticism and the unbelief of the writings of Tom Paine. The age of reason had settled into the soul of this young man, E. And Don, accepting this new friend, also accepted the unbelief of his friend. And so he jettisoned the Christianity that had been imbued into him by his parents. And so he was one of many who go to college with their church background and believing at some level as I did, and then in our college years, we jettison that and dismiss old Christianity as just superstition. And I was taught in the religion department of, once, of what had once been a Christian school, Wake Forest. The Bible is merely history written from one perspective. That has nothing to do with whether there is a God or whether there is truth. Certainly the book is history written from one perspective, just as a history of the Civil War would be written differently from our perspective in Georgia compared with Massachusetts or New York. And so this young man, Don, dismissed Christianity and the new age of reason arrived in his soul. And so now if he were to be honest, he would have to 
tell his parents of his newfound belief or rather his newfound unbelief. And that, of course, if you could imagine your parents as the believing parents and the child comes and tells you that what you believe is nonsense and what he has received, the age of reason. Isn't it interesting how well-fashioned the words of unbelief are? What's the age of reason? We all want to be reasonable. Well, cast your Christianity aside so that you can be reasonable. And so that hit his, his family like the proverbial ton of bricks. And whatever wisdom the father could conjure up or the tears of the mother didn't change his mind at all. He was determined, Don was, to move on into the age of reason, the age of unbelief, the age of skepticism. So shortly after that, uh, there was a break in the curriculum at Brown University, and Don decided to take a trip and see the world. Well, you're limited in those days because the world is other cities in Connecticut and Massachusetts, and the way that you travel is on horseback. But he set out to see the world in terms of those other cities. He wanted to see more of New England, so he did. And at the end of one particular long day on horseback, he arrived at an inn, just exhausted. So he went in and asked the innkeeper for a room. And the innkeeper said, well, there is only one room left, but I'm certain that you don't want to stay in that room. Because there is a very ill man in there, and he may die die. Sir, I'm a skeptic. I'm a reasonable man. Death has no effect on me. Give me the key. So he took the key and he went upstairs to the room. Reasonable, rational, no fear of death whatsoever. So he got into bed and I'm sure after his day on horseback, even the beds of that day were comfortable to him. And in the next room, and the partitions were very thin, so he could hear the next room where the ill man was, just as if there was no partition. And he could hear the voices of uh, people in that room, mumbling it sounded to him. There's a doctor there who was there for some period of time, and, and then he left. And then began, initially at a soft level, groaning. And it grew in volume until it became loud. Loud moans and groans. And it grows in volume until it's cries and shrieks of horror. It was as if this man was moving to the very precipice of eternity and as he looked over he would just cry out in horror shrieking such noise and cries that Don tried to 
turn on his side and, and hide his, his ears under the, the pillow, but still with that moaning and shrieking and yelling and crying, it caused him to tremble. He thought to himself, what is going to happen to that man when he dies? He remembered some of his father's sermons about how dreadful a Christless eternity would be. But then he said to himself, get hold of yourself. Get hold of yourself. What would your friend E say to you if he could see you hiding under the covers, under the pillows, trembling under those covers? Why, with his wit and his sarcasm, he would cut you to shreds. And finally, at about three in the morning, the moaning stopped and Don eventually fell asleep. When he wakened, he dressed and went downstairs to the desk to pay for his room. And as he was leaving, he turned to the innkeeper and he said, Oh, how was the fellow that was in the other room? The innkeeper said, He, he died. We thought you would have probably heard us carry the body out in the night. Don said, well, no matter. It's not important. It's just one person. It's not me. I'm a sophisticated man of reason. The innkeeper said, on the contrary, it's tragic. It's disastrous. It's extremely sad. Why, he was... Such a young man. In fact, he was a student at Brown University. Brown University? Well, who was it? What was his name? Perhaps I know him, or perhaps I, I knew him. And so the innkeeper turns the guest register around so that now Don clearly sees the names on that register and he sees that in that room the name of the student at Brown was E. And that moment struck him like a great blow in the solar plexus. His entire skeptical, unbelieving system of philosophy just crumbled. What was he to do now? He mounted his horse and turned it around and returned to the home of his parents, back to his father's house, and told them of what had occurred and what he had believed and about his Friend E and the disastrous departure of E from this world as an unbeliever. What is the truth? Tell me the truth that will be sufficient for time and eternity, for life in this world and life in the next. How can my sins be forgiven? Is the Bible true? Was the Easter tomb empty? And so for the 100th time, 
his dad told him of the love of Christ. That love of Christ that brought him from heaven. That love of Christ that caused him to hang in agony on Calvary's cross. That love of Christ that took him to the cold dampness of that tomb. And then that power of the love of Christ that enabled the stone to be rolled away and for him to burst through in life after those days in the tomb and once the, the cost of sin was paid. And so he has paid the price for sin, Don. He has purchased a place in heaven, Don. And it is for you to receive as a free gift, Don, by your faith. Don's saving faith is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. And that day Don bowed the knees of his heart and he received the great lover of his soul into his life. And now he would come to know what Paul calls the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ. He was transformed. He was a new creature. It's not just he read that he was a new creature or that he said that he was a new creature, but he knew, he knew that he was a new creature in Christ. And now he was controlled by the love of Christ. Just as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, that he was controlled, that he was compelled, that he was constrained. His life was managed by the love of Christ. So Don began to realize what Colleen realized so many years ago. That there are many all over the world who do not know of the love of Christ. And they are perishing. And their lives often are in squalor. And then they perish. So he began to feel that perhaps God wanted him to go and take that massive love of Christ to the ends of the earth. So he determined that that's what he needed to do. That's what he must do. He must go and do that because the love of Christ was directing and managing and constraining and compelling his life. Do you know the name of the initial American overseas missionary? He was one of the great men in church history and one of the great men in American history. His name really wasn't Don. That was his nickname. His full name was Adoran. Adoran. Adoran Judson. America's first missionary. Valedictorian of Brown in 1810 at the age of 19. A year before Don graduated, so it's 1809, Tom Paine, the teacher of E, 
the author of the book that had destroyed the faith over, of tens of thousands also died. Thank you for singing Rock of Ages to that new tune again. Rock of Ages was written by Augustus Toplady, who died at 38, an Englishman. And the last words uttered by Toplady were, Light! Light! I see light! And he was gone into that light. Well, I have read of the the death scenes of dozens of skeptics and unbelievers. Well, what is that like? What was it like for Tom Paine? You heard of something, what it was like for E. Well, some of this is from historians, and so the the words will seem a little odd to you. So I would say that uh, a historian says that Tom Paine's first wife died by ill usage. What in the world is that? His second was rendered miserable. Bless her heart, what does that mean? His third was a companion, not a wife, of him. It was the wife of the man... He seduced the wife of the man that gave him a home, a house to live in. He was fired from a job in England. They persuaded them to rehire him. And they did. And he was fired again for issues such as fraud and theft. So he returned to America for his chronic, to quote, where his habitual drunkenness made him most miserable. One historian of the day summarized the one who led so many to unbelief. His life was a compound of, listen to these terms, ingratitude, hypocrisy, greed, lewdness, and adultery. So in June of 1809, Tom Paine died. He had been reduced to the place that he was utterly dependent upon the charity of Christians whom he had so despised. The owner of the boarding house where he had a room provided for by the Christians said this, Mr. Payne labored under great distress. His cries, when left alone, are heart-rendering. This is what Payne would say. Oh, Lord, help me. God, help me. Jesus Christ, help me. Again and again. Then he would say, but there is no God. But if there should be, what will happen to me in the hereafter? Then he will continue for some time and then quietly and then suddenly he will scream as if he's in 
terror and agony. And he'll call for me by name. And she said, For all of the wealth in the world, I would never again attend the life of a dying unbeliever. Would to God that these dying scenes of the pagans would be printed in the preface of their books. Read the book. Adopt the philosophy. But the day will come when your experience will be like the experiences of these pagans and unbelievers about which I've read many. So now it is 1812. And Don has finished Brown as the valedictorian. He's finished seminary. And Adoniram Judson was in love. It happens, you know. With a beautiful young lady. And so he goes to speak to her father about giving her to him in matrimony. He wanted more than the hand. He wanted all of Anne. And her father said, I would sooner chain her to the bedpost than allow her to go overseas as a missionary and I would never see her again. But he was a devout Christian. And so they were soon married. And they arrived in Burma in 1813, exactly 20 years after William Carey arrived in India to begin what we term the modern missionary movement. Along with his massive intellect, Judson was uh, small and he was frail. And like Mary's like, and his wife Anne Hasseltine was small and frail. And the voyage to Burma took a year and a half. Eighteen months for the voyage. And then, like a Broadway musical or a Hollywood musical, down the gangplank they came, hand in hand, striding down to conquer Burma for Christ. But it wasn't like that. Anne was so weak that she was carried off the ship on a stretcher. She was so ill from the journey. And she was taken to the home that Judson had purchased for $300 outside the city of Rangoon. Not quite your neighborhood, because on one side was the city dump. And on the other side was an ill-kept cemetery. And the stench from both sides was brutal. Tigers roamed the area, consuming dogs and children alike. Judson wrote, I have no doubt 
that in all of God's broad earth, there is not a home as happy as ours. It was because Adoniram and Anne were filled with the love of Christ. So now the work in Burma. So he set himself to the great task of of translating the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, into this very difficult Burmese language. And with his great intellect, he prayed to God, Lord, enable me to do this so that many will be saved. Give me the ability to learn it. And he did. And so he translated the Old Testament to the New Testament into Burmese. He wrote a dictionary that was used in Burma for a hundred years. And he also wrote a, a, a school book in Burmese. Thirty years later, he returned for his first furlough to the U.S. And when he came to America, he was unable to speak in public in English. And so he would speak in Burmese and it was translated into English. He had so immersed himself into that language. The people were like the people in Mongolia, uh, something of a oriental look, high cheekbones, and culturally very, very difficult, very wild, savages. So it was six years before there was the first convert. Well, what if you're writing home, Colleen, to your supporters and they want to know, well, how many are converted? I'm working on it. But this first convert, spiritual pay dirt. He was a jungle tribesman. Is that the spiritual pay dirt? Apparently, because over a period of the next 15 years, there wasn't a church or a few churches. There were hundreds of churches and a hundred schools and thousands of believers of Burmese people. Now, England had given up on attacking America, not just the war for independence, but the war of 1812. So now, they're looking for someone else to attack. So England invades Burma. Well, for Judson, he's not English. He's American. Listen, we fought those people also. We were at war with those people then. They knew that since he was a white man, since they didn't know anything about England or anything about America, being white, he must be a British spy. So the soldiers arrested this frail scholar and put shackles on his ankles. And within a few steps, they were, they were bleeding. And he was marched, and for Judson, just inch by inch, halfway across the nation of Burma. And he was thrown into a pit, much more of a pit than a cell, filled with verma. And his feet were placed in stocks and elevated till only his shoulders touched the ground. There he stayed. But he never prayed, Lord, did you bring me here for this? 
So this slight and frail man spent two years in that pit. And this is what he wrote. He said, It was the love of Christ that strengthened him and enabled him to go on day after day after day in that setting, regardless of what those circumstances were. He said, The love of Christ so filled my heart with joy no matter where I was or what my conditions were. Christ is with me and He gives me His love and He gives me His strength. So two years pass and He is in time released. And the years of His ministry in Burma go on and on. And His wife becomes ill and she dies and she's buried in Burma. And there were children And the children were buried in Burma as well. Yet the love of Christ so constrained him and compelled him to go on. And so when he did come to this country, and he would travel, he would speak, he said two things. Pray for the small church in Burma. Pray for your Christian friends in Burma. Secondly, he said this, and may God write this sentence on the walls of your heart for you to remember into eternity. He said this, think much about the love of Christ. Think much about the love of Christ, that it might motivate your life and compel you so that you may learn the height, the depth, the length, the breadth, to comprehend the amazing love of Jesus Christ. Think much about the love of Christ. Is that motive? The love of Christ, does that compel and constrain your life? Ask yourself this. What did you do this week because the love of Christ constrained you and compelled you? What motivates you? Something is your primary motivation. You live in an area where people have had great personal gain. That's good. This is an area of of leisure and recreation. That's good. But what is it under that that really motivates you? You know, you can have the finest boat on the lake. You can have a a $10 million boat on Lake Oconee. And it can be outfitted in all of the best of everything. But there is something unseen that determines the direction of that boat, isn't there? It's the rudder. Nobody sees it. But it's operative. It doesn't matter what we do if we do it for the wrong motive. Christ taught.
taught us that. Is it the love of Christ? Is it gratitude? The great benefit of understanding Reformed theology is the level of gratitude. I am His. I was dead in sin. I could make no choice. Dead people don't make choices. I'm spiritually dead. How could I choose Him until He had first moved and chosen me and began to bring His Spirit into my life and make me thirsty for the the truth of the Scripture and to finally know that I needed to be saved. Do you think much about the love of Christ? You in these chairs with unlimited potential to share that one. Listen to America's initial overseas missionaries. And if he was standing here as these dear friends have been in front of you today, Judson, they would adjust the microphone for his slight frame. And with the ears of ill health, he would say, think much about the love of Christ. Think much about the love Well, the years continued to go by and Judson became so weak that the plan was for him to get on this ship and to go to Martinique, an area where he could have hospitalization physicians and have his strength restored. So he could return to Burma for more work among those people whom he loved. But while on the ship, He grew weaker and weaker until finally he couldn't get out of his bunk. And people came to minister to him and to try to get him to eat and to drink water until one day he closed his eyes. And when he opened them again, he could see Burmese friends who had found Christ and they were rejoicing and singing praises to God in a way that he had never seen before. And there was a strangely familiar figure who was bending over him and wiping every tear away from his eyes. And as Judson saw that hand, he saw that it had been pierced. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the love of Jesus Christ that not only took him all the way to Calvary, but will take all of us all the way to paradise. We pray that we may trust in that love totally, not in ourselves, but only in what Christ has done. May we be filled with that love so that we may be compelled by the height and depth and length and breadth of that love. Oh God, forgive us that so many have known nothing but the 
shallows of that love. Oh God, may we think much upon it. May the deep, deep love of Christ fill our hearts and our minds and our souls and impel and compel our lives to service for Him until that day when we shall also meet Him face to face. And that hand that was pierced shall be wiping away our every tear. And we pray it in His most glorious name. Amen.